0: welcome to the talk mormonism podcast i'm nick stainback today i'm pleased to introduce dr james Simeone. he's a professor of political science at illinois wesleyan university and author of the saints and the state the mormon troubles in illinois it feels like we've been well supplied with scholarship around the events of Nauvoo recently. Following the work done by the Joseph Smith Papers Project, books by Benjamin Park, Spencer McBride, and others have helped shed more light on this era of Mormon history. The Saints in the State is an important addition. It's not just a straightforward telling of historical events, it's more of an analysis of the entire political and social system that created the Nauvoo situation. In the book, Dr. Simeone paints a vivid picture of antebellum America, with its developing democracies, frontier justice, and rising religious pluralism. It was circumstances like these and other factors that combined to create the tension between Illinois settlers and the Mormon refugees. In our discussion, Dr. Simeone and I will try to answer the difficult questions. Who was in the right, the Mormons or the citizens of Illinois? How did Joseph Smith's vision develop from religious leader to presidential candidate with theocratic aspirations? And what are the implications for democracy in America today? We began the conversation by diving into the thesis of the book and introducing some key concepts to help make sense of the antebellum American landscape.
1: One of the key concepts that helps Make sense of the thesis, is the idea of developing democracies. And the key frame in the book is is viewing antebellum Illinois as a developing democracy. And, And the definition of a developing democracy is a state that is under the pressure to produce popular justice from the citizens, but also lacks the capacity to really enforce the law. And so that tension between A kind of high demand and weak supply uh, creates uh, the the paradox, I guess you could say, of developing democracies. And you know, enforcing the law is a big deal for government. And in in a sense, uh, the larger frame for the for the book is that the the Mormon troubles in Illinois is is an example of failed governance. Um, And again, like I say, the the archival basis that the Mormons have created allows me to sort of give a blow by blow account of the various, you know, critical junctures in the development uh, of, of the, the democracy in in Illinois. So I guess in terms of the thesis, I would say something like this, the thesis is that, you know uh, the, the the state crucially includes a, a settler narrative of worth, a story of peoplehood and, and, That story of peoplehood in Illinois, which existed prior to the Mormons coming, was the idea that Illinois was a land of independent producers, you know, and and so, you know, because of its weak capacity as a developing democracy, this land of independent producers allowed civil society actors a large role in law enforcement. As I'm saying, the the posses, the militias, the claim societies. Right. And then these volunteers, these civil society actors who sort of took on the mantle of the state, uh, they brought with them the pecking order and the background norms of their societal culture. And and this, as I call it, the civil society backstop, is a key uh, feature of the state power in America to this day. So I guess the thesis is that, you know, you've got uh, not just a set of institutions, but this civic narrative called the story of peoplehood you know, or in particular, this independent producer story, uh, which sort of authorized and justified state uh, power. And it did it at the local level. You know, they they call this, you know, in, in uh, Leonard Richards, in his book, Gentlemen of Property and Standing, talks about this notion of the local elites who were sort of in the position to act the part of the state. And as a result, they often Uh, played the role of recognizing or not misrecognizing is the word we use the other members of the state. And in in particular, the Mormons were a group that was, were at first recognized and then misrecognized Hmm. as outsiders uh, by the Illinois state.
0: Right. Uh, Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, in the, in the introduction um, that majority Ma- the majorities act as ordering devices, right, and and yeah. and actually consider themselves the the expressions of justice, um, and and that uh, minority groups uh, usually respond by deepening the the ties of their of their own attachment. I think is is how you put it in the book, um, and so this there's this tension uh, here when when the Mormons come to Illinois and uh you know at first are, are are greeted as 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 refugees um it sounds like to a certain extent they they fit in um at first but then uh, clearly events develop and 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 uh things sort of go south from there right
1: yes they they are accepted provisionally you might say and right and the test is are you an independent producer and uh the Illinoisans were so impressed with the Mormons, Producerism, their ability to build something like four hundred houses in, in one right. uh, one season, you know, uh, but they they ended up being mainly excluded on the independence ground. The idea that as as independent Republicans, uh, they could make up their own minds, if you will, about politics, and and the argument was, well, no, they're they're following Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm. and they're not independent. And, and and this test was applied to other groups, you know, the Native Americans, they were uh, independent, but not producers. And so, so it's a kind of a, a double-edged uh, standard that the, the story of peoplehood that was developed in Illinois and other settler states uh, in, in the country.
0: Can you um, talk about this... Um idea in, your, in the introduction of vertical equality, I, I, you made a distinction, and I, and I thought it was an important thing to mention here, this difference between uh, egalitarianism on, on one side, and then uh, e- the idea of equal moral worth. Can you talk about the differences between those two ideas?
1: Yes. Yeah, so today, when we talk about egalitarians, we th- talk about people who, you know, for lack of a better word, are universally ec- inclusive they they want all people to count simply because they're people and that's where the equal moral worth comes from so political philosophers today think of that as a a grounding principle or norm of liberal democracies but in fact in my understanding and here i'm following uh the theory of mary douglas uh, and her understanding of egalitarianism. In fact, egalitarians even to this day still have some group attachment that's motivating, if you will, the desire for equality in the first place. And so uh, the idea of, of you know vertical equality is that people see themselves more or less as members of a group and often, especially in in developing democracies, there are groups who feel completely put upon, you know, the minorities, uh, and and who feel often resentful of their treatment in the societal pecking order. You know, so you know, Catholics were seen as below Protestants right. in the in the American pecking order. So the Catholics developed this chip on their shoulder, if you will. Um, and they attached to the group of Catholics, and they defended the group of Catholics. Uh, well, the same thing happens for all groups, in fact. Uh, but the idea of the so the Mormons fit into this precisely, and and so the idea is with vertical equality is you're thinking of your the the, the place of your group in the societal pecking order vertically, and and you're you're always above somebody or below so, somebody else, uh, and then. Uh, You know, horizontal equality is just that is that what we consider today true equality, which is a more individualist view of equality, which, you know, instead of taking the group as a unit of analysis, now you're taking the individual as a unit of analysis. And you're looking horizontally across the the uh, social spectrum and you're comparing yourself to other individuals. And here the whole concept of equality is much less about, you know, justice for my group and more about fairness on the you know playing field of life for me as an individual. So yes, both individualists and egalitarians use the word equality, and we still uh, have uh, a general broader commitment to the norm of equality, but so often we have different, slightly different notions of what equality really means.
0: And I guess for for the residents of Illinois, the idea of equality um, included minority groups and and uh, refugee ty- uh, types um, buying into this uh, producerism bias, right?
1: Yeah, at the broadest level, they thought of themselves as inclusive, as tolerant of different religions, uh, and in fact, there were many different religions practiced in Illinois. Um, but as I'm suggesting, uh, not everyone fit into the independent producer uh, inclusive uh, family and membership, uh, and uh, you know African Americans in particular were uh, very much excluded, uh, especially by the Jacksonian Democrats, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be one example of a of a group that was was excluded, even though. We think today of the Jacksonians and Democrats, uh, the Democratic Party as being fairly, fairly inclusive. They were inclusive to you know, Irish and Germans, you could say, as, as immigrants to Illinois and Mormons. Uh, but uh, politics was about looking at these groups and often testing how truly producerist and how truly independent they were. So there, there was always that kind of provisional element and, and that's what politics is about often in, in a developing democracy is, is, is the majority with its norms wanting the minority to fit into those norms. And if the, if the minority, in this case, the Mormons uh, violated some of those norms as they did by living all together in Nauvoo and, and not really respecting the, the older settlers way of organizing things in Hancock County, uh then then there was trouble.
0: right I um, uh, for me in your in your book what what kind of helped to, to make sense of a, a lot of the uh, complex ev- events that are taking place is kind of um, breaking it down and, and uh, talking about it in terms of the uh, these three distinct viewpoints and, and maybe I, I'm probably, I know I am oversimplifying it this way, but, um, I found that three distinct viewpoints seem to kind of emerge. Um, and they were, you could say they were embodied by three, uh, distinct characters, right? You've got Joseph Smith, uh, on one side representing the, the saints and, and the Mormon ideal. Um, you have governor Thomas Ford, um, representing the state. And then uh, I felt like Thomas Sharp, he, he kind of did a good job representing um, the anti-Mormon movement or just opposition to, to the Mormons. Uh, and it may be helpful um, to kind of describe these individuals and, and their, their motivations, and their viewpoints, if, uh, if you wouldn't mind.
1: Yes, I think it's a very insightful question. The three distinct viewpoints each had its, its own view of the state, if you will. So you had Joseph Smith with his ideal of theodemocracy, and you have Thomas Ford with his ideal of the neutral state and enforcing the harm principle. Uh, and you have Thomas Sharp with his you know vigilante state of volunteers who are defending their right to self-government. I, th- I think I should spend a little time breaking those down. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yes, I think I think those three characters and those three principles were all in tension uh, and created created the what we now refer to in many ways as the Troubles. You know, uh, whatever Smith meant by theodemocracy, one thing for sure. I was going to ask you as the expert I, yeah. what he meant. <laughs> well, one thing for sure, it meant that the state and uh, the church or religion would be unified. Right. And, you know, Smith saw that as an unmitigated good because the religion, the Theo, was Mormonism, which he obviously believed in and and valued. And the democracy part of theodemocracy was a kind of Jacksonian egalitarianism. And, And both of those things were obvious goods to him. So theodemocracy was, you know, a great rockstar concept for, for Smith. And he couldn't understand how anyone didn't like it, you know, but unfortunately in Illinois, um, it was at odds with this background assumption that, oh, the Americans, uh, believe in separation of church and state, or in any case, they, they welcome many different religions and there isn't one, you know, established religion. And, and, and in fact, um, Abraham Lincoln defined a fanatic, uh, in his, his 1842 speech, uh, on temperance. He, he defined a fanatic as a person who wants the unification of church and state. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Wow. So, so while Smith is looking at theodemocracy as this great concept, the Illinoisans are very suspicious and see it as telltale sign of fanaticism. Um, you know, I think, uh, On the other hand, it's important to see how just how mainstream the Mormons really were. And and I think in in Joseph Smith's support of democracy, especially this, he's very much a a classic egalitarian and precisely in the Mary Douglas way of thinking of, oh, I want my group to be vindicated in the pecking order of groups in America. Mm -hmm. You know, I have this proper understanding of Christianity. I have this new revelation and I want to just bring it forward uh, and, and but I mean so since since <laughs> since the Illinoisans themselves have the same idea, oh we the hard-working farmers are the true ideal citizen and we want to bring that forward right so, so our particular group becomes the universal and especially for most egalitarians they don't even make a distinction between their particularism and their universalism. Uh, the particularism swallows the universal. So, uh, you know, in, in that sense, uh, you know, S- Smith and the, and the Mormons are in, in many ways quite mainstream. Now, now, Ford was an egalitarian, too, um, and he recognized that the, his beloved Democratic Party uh, was biased and particularist and often was misrecognizing African-Americans, uh, Native Americans, and, and he often didn't understand and didn't approve that approach. His idea was that the state should be perfectly universal. So he's, he's on the universalist side of egalitarianism. And mm-hmm. uh, to some extent that approach to egalitarianism becomes very similar to individualism and, and their ideal of, of equality is very much uh, horizontal. He, he's trying to deny the vertical uh, pecking order. And, and and thinks it has no place in the state's uh, implementation of the law, and and so he you know he was a frontier judge uh, in in northern Illinois and he, and he rode the circuit all over northern Illinois, including Chicago, and, and he had a number of tough uh, you know uh, interactions with with uh, counterfeiters and and uh, sort of you know uh, outlaws. And so he, he completely understood this idea that that uh, you were going to have to enforce the harm principle. The harm principle is the idea that, you know, you're free to do whatever you want as long as you don't harm another person or property. Right. And, you know, his idea was, well, what's the big deal? If, if the state can just enforce neutrally the harm principle, that's it will be legitimate. And that's also. what a proper democracy is. So he's got that ideal. Uh, And as I'm suggesting, though, that's really in conflict uh, with with a lot of what's actually going on on the ground in Illinois. Uh, The independent producer ideal, even if you accept it as a broad ideal, is not being applied universally and fairly. Um, So so Ford uh, is is, you know, problematic in that way, too. Uh, You know, he he kind of views everything through the lens of the courtroom. And and to his credit, let's 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 state here that of course the ideal of impartiality and neutrality in the courtroom is a very noble ideal, um, but but that's one kind of neutrality. You might call that a procedural neutrality, um, but but that's not the way uh, that the state got its legitimacy in Illinois, at least as a developing state that didn't have the capacity to enforce the law completely, and so had to rely on these civil society partners who by definition were biased living in a majority societal culture. So, you know, the Ford story is, is uh, a tragic one. Uh, And it's, you know, to me, it has many lessons for us today. And this whole idea of state neutrality is something we can talk about perhaps, but uh, it's, it's an ideal that probably in my opinion needs to be, to be thrown out. Um, and, and, and even the ideal of the independent producer needs to be examined more carefully. Uh, and then finally, I, a long answer to your question You get to Thomas Sharp, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was, he was from, he was leaders of the anti-Mormons, uh, in many ways he was the leader of the anti-Mormons. He was different from, uh, Ford and Smith in the sense that he was more a competitive individualist. I mean, obviously, all these people have some individualists and some egalitarian elements, but the egalitarian elements were stronger in, in uh, Smith and Ford. And, and in, in Sharp, he was, he was more this, this co- competitive individualist. And, and I think uh, in some ways, Americans today can really understand Thomas Sharp because he, he's sort of a harbinger or a, a leader of, of what was to come in America. These are people who they don't really identify with any particular group strongly. In fact, they're strongly in denial that they even have a group or even have a special culture that they're enforcing. They see themselves completely in terms of vertical equality. Uh, They just want to level the playing field. But their big problem is with people who are asymmetrical in their their uh, uh, approach. Uh, And he would argue that many egalitarians and Mormons in particular, were asymmetrical in the sense that they were willing to tolerate people within their group and they wanted their group to be tolerant, uh, but they were not willing to tolerate outsiders. Um, and so he when you get an asymmetry like that, especially competitive people, they don't like it when someone's getting what they see as an unfair advantage on the playing field of life you know, yeah, you're getting toleration, but you're not extending toleration. So that drives them crazy. Uh, and indeed, that's that was a telltale sign of the lack of independence on the part of the Mormons that that ultimately, you know, Sharp is going to argue that the, the Mormons, while they pass the producerist test, they don't pass the independence test. So, uh, and, and in fact, you know, uh, even on the producerist grounds, Uh, the the Mormons had some trouble. You have to remember they came from Missouri and it was a warlike condition there. Yeah. That context Uh, is, is important, I guess. The context is important. And, and Joseph Smith had, you know, enunciated a number of, you know, wartime rules, such as, yes, you can steal from a Gentile. Uh, And those were sort of carried over in some cases in Illinois so that um, sharp, also made the argument and the anti-Mormons were also making the argument that the Mormons were not truly producers, that they were mainly thieves, counterfeiters, you know, outlaws, people who, you know, in that whole genre of, of American Western thinking, uh, if you can label someone as an outlaw, then they're no good. and And especially if you can accuse someone of thievery, horse thievery, cow thievery, you know, think of think of the, the, the rustler in the West, right? You can't think of someone who's worse morally. So, so yeah. So, you know, it's a little more complicated than I'm presenting it, but yeah, there was also that, that strong uh, question of, of the Mormons being really truly producer producers, but uh, mainly it's the independence ground where Sharp makes his case uh, and, and argues, Hey, look, uh, the Mormons have basically set up their own state, they have more allegiance to their group and to their state than to the the settler farmers of Illinois and our state. So it sort of came down to to loyalty in a way. Yes. A big, a big deal, especially for, for egalitarians is who, who, what's your highest allegiance? Uh, And, 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 and for Joseph Smith, without a doubt his highest allegiance was to the group of Mormons Uh, and, and for, for Thomas Sharp and and Thomas Ford, the highest allegiance was to the group of of independent settler farmers in Illinois.
0: In uh, chapter two of your book, um, it's called uh, Joseph Smith and the New Politics of Belief. Uh, that stood out to me. Can can you tell us what your uh, what you mean by the new politics of belief? How should we think about that?
1: Well, that gets to, to an important point uh, that kind of a dilemma that, that Thomas Ford faced as governor of Illinois. Um, The new politics of belief was the idea that, that, you know, in the liberal democratic tradition that the American revolution and the the federalists put in place under the U S constitution, you might call that the first American regime where the Jacksonians are the second American regime, regimes being subsets or biases imparted in, into the state policies. Um, the Federalists were very much uh, believing that, that individuals should make up their own mind about religion and they didn't require religious tests or oaths for for office, you know, and, uh, but, but the reason this is new is that for for the centuries before that, you know, it was just assumed that people accepted the belief system of their society. Um, People were just more traditional. And and whether it was a church authority or or aristocratic or monarchical authority, it was just assumed that those were the beliefs that the ordinary person held. The reason it's a new politics of belief is that once, once this liberal democratic approach takes sway and and is imposed by the, the Americans in their new constitution it puts a lot of pressure, you might say on the individual. And, and it becomes very important to make sure from a liberal perspective, that the individual is really making up their own mind and is freely choosing the beliefs that they have. Now, um, Ford was was in this difficult position of having to, you know, assess whether the Mormons were going to be just an ordinary religion, uh, which allowed people to express their beliefs, or was you know the word they used was imposture, or you know imposing, that that basically the Mormons were and Joseph Smith as a kind of charlatan were hoodwinking. The Mormon followers and, you know, with the ultimate goal of either harming their person or harming their property. So since, since Ford was very much concerned with the harm principle, mm-hmm. he, he felt that it was his job to, the, the politics of belief for him was to make this assessment. Um, what kind of group is this Mormons? Are they dangerous? Are, are they going to, you know, harm people's property? Are they going to hoodwink people and Svengali-like take them under their control and abuse right. them? And, and actually, you know, for you know, so while he was on the lookout for imposters, he, he, he distinctly um, dissented from that view uh, that the Mormons were imposters. Um, he, while he himself was not a religionist, as he, as he told Smith, um, he did not think that Joseph Smith fit the typical profile of the religious fanatic, you know, someone who's, whose focus was to, to uh, control others to the point where uh, they would take advantage of them, at least immediately. Uh, and also his temperament, Joseph Smith's temperament uh, persuaded Ford, you know, he even though the Mormons were millennialists and they were uh, believing in the end times, uh, they didn't have that sort of dour uh, pessimistic perspective that often could lead to, you know, mass murder, like, you know, Jim Jones right. in, in Jonestown or something. So, um, you know, that, that, I, I guess I wanted just to point out to to people reading that this is a really, a real live decision that Ford had to make a judgment call, if you will, about where the Mormon beliefs would lead and whether they were dangerous and would lead to harm or not. And he, he made the judgment call that they wouldn't. Uh, and of course, the anti-Mormons and Thomas Sharp thought he made the wrong judgment call. But um, so, yeah, that that whole background about the nature of individual freedom to choose, but that then puts a pressure on really knowing whether the person is making a free choice or not. Right, right. That's the new thing. <laughs>
0: I want to sort of start getting into uh, some of the historical events that, um, that sort of uh, led up to this uh, pressure cooker situation. Um, and uh, can you, can you sort of describe for, for the audience uh, the events that led up to the, the Mormons acquisition of the Nauvoo charter and, and and maybe just give us an idea of uh, what sort of protections or, or, privileges the charter granted them? Because this is really, and um, I think, important if, if we're going to understand what uh, had this, the settlers in Illinois so
1: on edge, right? Yes, it is an important part of the whole story uh, and led to a lot of animosity and resentment against the Mormons. The Mormons had seen uh, I'll, I'll focus mainly on on, on the NABU Charter, on the uh, the power to grant uh, the writ of habeas corpus. Yeah, yeah, that'd be and, great. And obviously, there were many other things in the charters. Um, every, every municipality in Illinois, in order to have home rule, had to have its own charter. And so they ap- appealed uh, to the Illinois legislature in 1840 and indeed got a very commodious and generous charter from the state, um, again, under this sort of agreement between the Whigs and, and Democrats that while well, we are a, a welcoming people and we're welcoming refuge uh, refugees and and uh, we're we're open to give succor to the persecuted and and we don't like the Missourians, they're pro-slavery and we think that the the Mormons got a sh- bad deal in Missouri. So yeah, we're we're going to grant the, uh, the Mormons a broad charter, uh, including the power of the uh, Nauvoo City Council uh, and the mayor to issue writs of habeas corpus from their local courts, um, and as I'm suggesting that, that that you know with their trials and tribulations in in Ohio and Missouri, the The Mormons leadership definitely saw the benefit of having um, habeas corpus, which which could be defined as, you know, you know, you, you will have you shall have the body is what the Latin is referring to. And it's basically a judge can say to a police officer or an executive branch prosecutor, why are you holding this person? Why are they in your jail? You know, and and if you don't have a law that you can show that at least they plausibly broke, uh, then they get to go free. So it's it's a get out of jail free card, I guess you could say. And, and, and it came in very handy for Joseph Smith as he was being pursued by these Missouri sheriffs. Um, and, and, you know, this 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 tool then uh, being used over and over again, I think there were six or seven or maybe even eight habeas episodes uh, that I document in the book, from, from the Mormon perspective, again going back to that frame of of developing democracy, they see it as the classic popular justice. You know, we the outsiders, the downtrodden, are using our rights against an oppressive group that are yeah. trying to, to, you know, but but,
0: but there's the, but then persecution complex persecution. I guess, kind you know, well the pers-
1: right. but, but then on the but then from the other side, the anti-Mormon or the you know the old settlers of Hancock County, they keep on seeing Joseph Smith get out of the clutches of the law. Right. You know, and, and he, he was either under, you know, a charge of treason uh, for, for fighting in, in Missouri against the, the militia there, or he was under a charge of, of attempted murder uh, of, of Governor Boggs uh, through the, the, you know, uh, offices of, of uh, Rockwell. So, uh, and, and so he was constantly being pers- persecuted and pestered by, by, by the Missouri sheriffs. And that's a really important, you know, sort of contextual factor Though if you look at the, the, the archives and the Mormon, uh, memoirs, it's clear that the followers felt that in essence, the, the Missouri war wasn't over, uh, and they were still being persecuted. And, and so, they felt perfectly vindicated in and authorized and justified in in using habeas and using the the uh, charter powers uh, to their fullest extent. And of course, the average Illinoisan often looked at these uh, charter powers and said, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! We we didn't mean that that you could use a habeas writ against." you know, the state or the governor of another state or against state law or even against federal law. Right. you got a local municipality using its its habeas power against the federal and state authority. Uh, that's not what we meant. <laughs> right. In fairness uh, to the Mormons and, and their attorneys who argued quite vociferously that actually uh, it might have been what they meant that, that certain uh, municipalities, namely uh, Chicago, had been granted a power uh, to allow state courts to, you know, adjudicate, I'm uh, sorry, allow local courts to adjudicate state law in this way. Certainly, Thomas Ford himself was appointed a sort of a special judge to oversee just a slew of lawsuits that came through in Chicago when Chicago was going through its boomtown uh, experience from 36 to, to, to 40 and, and, and Ford was there. So, so Ford himself knew that there were some uh, questions uh, in, in legal questions about about how this this habeas uh, power was being used. But of course, that is far a far cry from the average Illinoisan who just looks at this and says, oh, the Mormons have been granted special privileges. I'm against special privileges. Yeah. I'm an egalitarian Jacksonian. My group is being biased here. They're getting special favors that I'm not getting. Uh, might, might be the competitive individualist response. Therefore, they're no good.
0: And I can kind of... Um when I was reading your book, I, I found myself uh, sympathizing with um, with the Illinois uh, settlers position to a certain extent, because one of the things you identify is that um, this charter also grants sort of the navu Legion. Does that does that come out of that? I mean, it's this huge military force, right?
1: Yes, the it wasn't unusual for. Uh, you know, local militias to form as volunteer bodies. Um, but of course, also uh, the state law actually uh, uh, designated uh, municipalities as the place for state militias to form. And, and the legion. Nabul- you know, so state, basically every Illinoisan was required uh, over the age of, of, uh, 18 and, and under the age of 45, to provide volunteer militia services uh, when called upon and to organize. Uh, so the Navu Legion then was was created uh, as a, uh, yes, it had its own charter, but it was uh, authorized under the broad state law uh, to carry out these state militia obligations and duties that all citizen soldiers. Um, as independent Republicans uh, and manly Republicans were, were, were required to do in, in Frontier Illinois and in almost every state in the union.
0: I see. So, so you're, it, wasn't, it wasn't really um,
1: well, on the pale. I, that... what, I'm say, what I'm saying is that legally, it was not unusual or outside okay. the mainstream. However, of course, you have people like Thomas Sharp, who is the editor of the Warsaw Signal, who is writing in his columns what kind of a religious denomination is this <laughs> that has their own city charter with their own militia you know what are they planning to do here you know we're we're concerned that we're going to we the old settlers of, of Hancock County are going to lose control over our self-government because more and more people are coming many many immigrants from from Manchester and Birmingham and England are coming every year and they are they have become the majority in our county and legally or not, they're violating some of the basic background norms of the way you know what I call the Illinois way, you know that that basically when the new settlers come, they defer to the patterns that the old settlers, Laid out and one of the patterns the most important pattern uh, that the Mormons violated was the pattern that you not settle separately right yeah. in an ethnic or religious context it was mainly uh, ethnic uh, you know either you know all, all the 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 Danes are going to be in one you know all, or the Norwegians or the Germans or the British you know, uh, are going to be in one settlement or the Yankees all in one settlement. You know, Uh, early on in the 1820s and 30s, that approach was looked upon by your average Jacksonian Democrat as as a uh, wrong headed way of settling. It implied that you were better or separate or different from your neighbors and that you were not going to mix with the ordinary people uh, and that you wanted your own. Sort of way of doing things, and that seemed, again, uh, in the norms of the day, anti-republican.
0: So that definitely didn't didn't help things. It's uh, it, it um, this the way that the Mormons settled all all together versus spreading out and commingling, sort of a concentration of of their power. I can see where that that is a, a bit of and a of a daunting exactly- thing.
1: Exactly. And then not not only that, but several times in the 1840 to 1844 period, you know, before the the storming of the Carthage jail, uh, you have the Mormons sort of making these deals with one party or the other. You know, this is what Thomas Ford complained about is he, he blamed the parties as much as he blamed the Mormons. He said, well, the parties keep on you know making a, a toy of the mormons and they know that the leadership can sway the vote as a block one way or the other and this this block voting combined with the fact that by being the majority in the county they controlled all the offices executive legislative and especially judicial they controlled the juries they controlled the judges now the, the the as you put it the you know the, the illinois settlers in the area did have a a, a claim that they had lost their their ability to govern themselves and and so when thomas sharp organizes his vigilantes it's on the ground of what he calls self-defense defense defense of their republican right to govern themselves has been taken away from them by this new new group that's just been exploding like a mushroom everywhere uh and and now is you know, by by 46, Nauvoo is, if not the largest city in, in, in Illinois, you know, it, it, very close to it. Uh, it has 15000 people. Chicago has 15000 people. So. There is there is there is some definitely some ground to their their grievance.
0: Do we have instances of um, uh, I mean, what they would consider election meddling? Um, what, what, what did that what did the block voting situation look like?
1: I guess the classic example is when attorney Cyrus Walker, who was a Whig, uh, stepped in in one of uh, Joseph Smith's habeas cases and defended uh, him and was able to get him off. He is part of the deal. You can call it meddling or political dealing. Uh, The deal he caught with Joseph Smith was, uh, you know, if you vote for me in the next election, you know, uh, I'll do this for you. Because Cyrus Walker was the best attorney in the state. Mm-hmm. So he was a hired gun, I guess you could say. And um, Joseph Smith agreed to that deal. But as he, you know, sort of parsed the, the the deal, he said, well, it's one thing for me, I'll vote for, for Walker, but uh, I don't know about the rest of the people. And then, you know, you have Hiram Smith 10 days before the election saying, oh, he had a revelation from God that he's supposed to vote for the Democrat and all the Mormons are supposed to vote for the Democrat. So... Just just the fact that then, in fact, all the Mormons did vote for the Democrat, suggested to the ordinary Illinoisan that these people were not independent, that they were under the sway of their leadership in precisely the way that, that, you know, back in Europe, you know, peasants were under the sway of aristocrats. Uh, And again, back to this idea of are they really making up their own mind? Are they really freely choosing? And... That just infuriated, you know. And of course, the the parties um, were happy to play this game. They've been playing this game. They still play that game, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's what we call. That's what what we call compromise in democratic politics. But but it also obviously drives a lot, especially nonpartisan or people not on the partisan spectrum, just totally crazy, and they makes the system look completely illegitimate from their perspective. Um, but. Uh, you know, ultimately, by 42, the Whigs were saying, OK, we're out of this. We keep losing. Uh, the Democrats are too crafty. Uh, they're getting the the Mormon vote all the time. And then the Democrats also uh, disavow the Mormons. And once that and then, of course, the, 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 the icing on the cake, Joseph Smith comes out and runs for president in 1844. And, and, you know, I, I think that that has been underestimated as an important juncture in this whole point, because not only does it, again, confirm this egalitarian bias for his own group, um, in, in, in the sense that that he's saying, well, the Mormons don't believe in any party, we, we believe in ourselves. Um, Yeah, in the name of redeeming the American Republic, okay, grant you that, but sure. uh, there were many Protestant groups around who felt that they were, they had the job of redeeming the American Republic. So uh, that part was was not focused on so much as it was that, okay, you know, the parties no longer really have any incentive to try to court the Mormons. And that was a real dangerous moment uh, because it sort of, you know, untethered the Mormons and made them their own entity. And uh, they lost the protection all they had was Thomas Ford, and of course his ideal of the neutral state. And he was very committed to, after the storming of the the Carthage jail and the assassination of of Joseph and Hiram Smith, uh, he was bound and determined to bring those anti-Mormons to trial. Again, under his norm of, of impartial, fair, neutral justice. And all that did was even further infuriate the anti-Mormons, <laughs> and all the people around uh, Hancock County came to the support with their militias of the uh, old settlers of Hancock, because that's how strong those those background norms about the old settlers were, and that's how offensive the Mormon violation of those background norms was.
0: Can we can we talk about the Smith's presidential run. Do you? I wanted to ask. Do you view his candidacy, candidacy as a defensive move, a desperate move? I, I've seen some some recent scholarship that indicates that um, it's a response to the persecution. Um, but then I, I've also seen the viewpoint out there that um, it, it's more a sign of his just growing political ambitions rather than a, a defensive posturing.
1: Well, that's a, that's a real tough call. Uh, I think leaders, leaders of any egalitarian group, um, often are, uh, seduced by the power they get, uh, from their followers. So that second argument is plausible. Uh, but I still follow that first one a little bit more about the defensive posture. Um, you know, you, you look at the Council of 50 and the the sort of movements that Smith was making to move to the West already in early 1844. And you realize that he already has realized he's got to go West. He's got it. Once again, he's got himself. He thought he had solved the problem by creating his own state. But in fact, uh, it, it didn't solve the problem. He realized now, oh, we have to go where we become the original settlers, where we become the old settlers. And and so already, I think defensively, this council of 50 and, and, and a lot of his theodemocracy is 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 already, I think, uh, driven by this, we're a persecuted people, uh, egalitarianism, which, you know, I, I don't think the, the Mormons are unique in this regard. Any Any group that feels set upon um, it, it becomes this is the part of Mary Douglas's argument that people need to understand is that she's saying that the setting influences the the ideology or the, the view and certainly when you're in a group setting uh, when you become more persecuted, then the group develops more rules of inclusion and d- distinction between them and the world. And, and this thing about purity and impurity becomes even more important, right? So I think, you know, uh, certainly baptism of the dead was an amazing tool for creating unity among the Mormons. And, um, yeah, so I, I really do think that his, he actually thought that he was, you know, as I put it, he's going to, you know, Mormonize America, uh, and, and, and. And in doing so, he's doing Americans a favor. Uh, but yes, he's also protecting himself and his people uh, because the corrupt political system is, is so bad uh, that, that the only way forward is for him to either leave the country or run for president and take over the country
0: you, you talked you talked about it just now but I, I wanted to come back to that you I really liked the way you described um, these rituals and the impact they had on or the impact that they have on minority groups to sort of bind them together. So I wanted to ask can what is the significance in your mind of, of these um, doctrinal innovations and these rituals that start to come about really rapidly in Nauvoo? Uh, you mentioned baptism for the dead um, and polygamy also is a big one. Um, so in terms of your research, how do you view the, these practices?
1: Absolutely crucial and fundamental uh, from the Mormon perspective, for sure. I mean, and that's, again, uh, the, the whole, uh, you know, I think religious scholars call them discursive practices, the, the, the practices that are associated with doctrine uh, baptism of the dead, uh, uh, you know, plural marriage, uh, these, the whole idea of sealing, the whole idea of living on eternally as a God on your own planet and all that stuff. Uh, you know, those are really strong, uh, motivators, but I I think the, the, maybe you, this helps maybe a more sympathetic understanding is that the, the, you know, the family was such an important part of Joseph Smith's experience, and it, and it was such an important part of many of the Mormons' experience. And so the idea that there would be people uh, who would not be able to join the rest of the saints in all eternity, uh, but who were part of the family, so, like Joseph Smith's brother Alvin, who died before the prophecies were laid out. Uh, there was a great longing and a feeling that these people ought to somehow be able to be brought into eternity and sealed. And and these rituals and and the the keeping of the names and all that was 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 a way of sort of verifying the legitimacy of the of the salvation that that the Mormons had and 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 that the The salvation that was going to be extended to these dead uh, family members, and it—it was just an amazing explosion. I guess it just spoke to what the ordinary Mormon really had on their mind. Uh, And I—and you got to think about that and say, "Well, gosh, that is a a very uh, loving instinct." Yeah. You know, but of course, from a political perspective. Uh, it meant that really they weren't focusing at all on what was going on politically, and it only just gives the leaders more more leeway to do whatever they want, which, for better or worse, can can lead to to tragic consequences, as it did in in Nauvoo.
0: From your perspective, um, and there may not even be a, a clear answer to this, but what would have been sort of a win-win solution here Um, in your mind was this conflict unavoidable or are there factors that you think could have um, affected the outcomes different state leadership Uh, what do you think
1: yes I think a win would win win would have been very difficult Um, it's almost a perfect storm scenario right it is because because of course Ford as he's promoting popular justice from a minoritarian perspective of inclusion uh, for the Mormons. The anti-Mormons are pursuing popular justice from the majoritarian perspective of, you know, we want the law enforced against this outlaw. And since those are, you know, those are the two sort of strongest um Sentiments within a developing democracy. Um, I, I, you know, I can't help but think that the majority is going to win. But the minority in this case was represented by the governor. Now, it turned out the governor, once he had been abandoned by his party, uh, really didn't have a lot of ability to enforce the law by himself. He called out a number of militias. Uh, and, and he was able to restore order somewhat, uh, but the situation had gotten completely out of hand as he put it, when I got into Hancock County in 46, uh, with my last militia, you know, somehow these people really had gotten in, it into their head that they were in, running their own government separate. So now the anti-Mormons too, in their defense of their self government had as a vigilante group become their own law. Uh, and so, uh, you know, once once group polarization gets to that extent, uh, then you, you're really, distrust is so profound. Uh, it's really, really difficult to, to you know, patch things up and get a, a solution. I mean, the only solution was basically, uh, you know, Stephen Douglas, inf- as the informal leader of the state, the, the key Democrat, and of course Illinois was such a Democratic state that Douglas had more offices under his control than, than Ford did uh, at that point. So uh, Douglas cut the deal with with Brigham Young, and 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 by uh, uh, you know February of of of. Uh, 46 they were leaving, but it was already by October of 45 that they had agreed they were gonna leave. So uh you know that I think Ford, if he had, you know, if if and if, right? All these counterfactuals, yeah. <laughs> you know, if if Ford had been able, I think he, you know, he understood, he saw what 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 because he was in pretty close contact and communication with Joseph Smith, he saw that that Smith was already wanting to leave. So his idea was, OK, the win-win would be I'll negotiate that the Mormons are going to leave and uh, the anti-Mormons will get what they want and the Mormons will get out of here without any violence. So in a, in some ways, that was close to what happened. What he didn't count on was the anti-Mormons storming the jail uh, and, uh, you know, killing, killing the two brothers. And so... That that just uh, sort of unhinged things to the point of that these kinds of, you know, sort of negotiated deals with respect uh, were impossible. And all that was left was for the anti-Mormons to discover the the pogrom strategy of attacking Mormons with arson that were in the rural parts of Hancock County and didn't have the protection of Nauvoo. And so when the Mormons realized, uh, these vigilantes are now attacking us, we're in our vulnerable spot, uh, we really don't have much choice but to leave. So ultimately, the, the outcome was similar to what, a, what a, I guess what a win-win would be. They had all kinds of ideas. Uh, Ford tried to get the federal militia, uh, federal military to come in. He couldn't. He had the idea of dividing the county maybe you could have a mormon and an anti-mormon you know there were all kinds of, of solutions that just didn't work um and so yeah i guess ultimately uh, uh th- there was no no resolution
0: in in your in the conclusion to your book um you point out something that i thought was pretty significant you mentioned that one of one of the um takeaways is the perils of democratic uh, democratic storytelling um and i wondered if you could tell us more about that idea um and and then in, in your view any other lessons that one can can learn from the mormon troubles in illinois
1: well you know the idea of the civic narrative the independent producers is itself a democratic story you know we the worthy democratic people uh we as settlers, we took the land from the native peoples, but we were justified because they weren't producing Hmm. on it. So that's a story right there. So, uh, you know, is that story accurate? No. Uh, But it's a story that we don't seem to be able to live without. Um, So what I encourage people to do is to look closely at this, this independent producer narrative and, 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 Just own it, accept it as a majority tool uh, to confirm majority worth. Um, And uh, so that's uh, part of what I mean by the perils of democratic storytelling. One of the perils is, is you're operating under a story and you don't even know it. You know as the c- typical competitive individualist thinks i don't have a story i don't have a culture i'm just an individual the state is perfectly neutral uh and there is no bias well no you know that that's false so one of the perils is denial uh living under a story and and not uh knowing that you're under a story i guess the other thing is of course the, the questions of you know factually incorrect stories. And I start the conclusion by talking about J.S. Mill, who in On Liberty uses the example of Mormon persecution in the United States and in Britain as an example of, you know, the dangers of democratic conformity. Uh, And, of course, the whole point of On Liberty is that so many societies fell prey to a kind of conformity at the social level and didn't have enough freedom of dissent so that, you know, people like Socrates and, and and Jesus, who had great messages, but were unpopular, uh, never got a chance to to fully have their message uh, expressed, and they were persecuted by their society. And he's, of course, arguing for freedom of speech and freedom of press. And, you know, it, it, as you can see, I, I don't think that, in fact, the Mormon troubles in Illinois were an example of religious persecution. You know, it, it's more an example of Tension over uh, government institutions and enforcing the law. And so uh, I think that J.S. Mill's story is factually incorrect, but I guess that's another peril of democratic storytelling, which is, you know, actually the story that that Mill tells. If it's factually incorrect, it still has a lesson that we need to learn, which is, yeah, dissent is really important uh, in a democratic society. You know, of course, getting the facts right is also important. I'm not trying to suggest that that is unimportant. That is obviously very important too. And I, you know, I have some discussion of that, but, uh, yeah, so those, those would be some of the the perils. And I guess, I guess ultimately the, the lesson that I see coming out of this is, you know, how, how difficult it is for, uh, you know, the majority in power to see itself, you know, fully uh and own its biases uh you know the the state is not just enforcing the harm principle it's also enforcing these background norms that we're very committed to and i don't think that recognizing that there's the story necessarily means giving up on the project of fairness or justice no just the opposite Uh, often there are minority groups who who will have to assimilate to the majority norm. Okay. Uh, That's their part of the bargain, but the majority part of the bargain should be to also recognize when uh, what it's asking of the minority is really not a matter of justice, but a matter of order. Uh, And the order might be differently construed, you know, uh, in the case of, of Nauvoo, you know, maybe, maybe there should be a rule that says, no, people uh, should not be able to live you know, separately to the point where they control all the local offices and control the local juries. Uh, You know, so maybe we make that a law and not a norm. That would be one kind of reform uh, that maybe could have happened. And just the acknowledgement and the realization, I mean, this is why to me, me, Thomas Ford is in some ways the hero of the book because he, you know, tragic one, but, you know, he, he recognizes that there are these biases so that's step one. Unfortunately, he wants to deny <laughs> the biases. I don't think denial is the way to go. I think it's, it's owning and, 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 and accepting and bringing them out and making them transparent. So to me, you know, that's really in some ways the services, the service that the Mormons are doing for the American state is allowing it to see how it really works and how it can be improved,
0: well said, well said. You uh, you mentioned it at the at the beginning of our interview. Um, parallels to between this story and and uh, where we are in America today. Things like state neutrality. Uh, are th- did you want to talk about that? Any other
1: parallels that you see? Well, I guess you know the most obvious one is this populism uh, that's developed, right? And and you know, in my terms, populism is nothing other than a majoritarian uh, uh, democratic, uh, movement for popular justice. They're saying we, the people know better than, than the elected officials know what the state needs. And in a kind of vigilante move, we're going to become the state. Um, and, and, uh, you know, that's, that's on the, you know, the, the, Trump side. And then on the other side, you've got people, you know, in the black lives matter movement who are saying, you know, well, no, we're the persecuted minority, um, and supposedly democracy is also about, you know, uh, justice for everyone. You know, sojourner truth says, ain't I a woman? You know, aren't I included in this in this so, so-called, you know, democratic republic? Uh, and why I, why am I not treated fairly? You know, uh, so those are the two claims to justice. And, and once again, uh, the state uh, is being beset uh, by both sides. And and uh, now, yes, as a developed democracy, the U.S. has more capacity to enforce the law. But I believe that we still have this localist notion of enforcing the norms. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's it's an accident that it was in Ferguson that, that so many of the um, uh, protests developed on Black Lives Matter, because at that point, you know, the, the African-Americans were actually a majority in that town. And so they they were arguing on both the minoritarian and the majoritarian side right. of popular justice. Uh, you know, hey, we are now the people. We are now the majority. Uh, we should have uh, fair police uh, uh, justice in, in our town. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I see a lot of these patterns, and part of American political development is to is to expose these patterns, but then to show how they persist. And, and how they help explain what's going on today. And uh, yeah, the, the, the tension between these, I call it you know, the Janus face, that the two faces of, of popular justice uh, is, is another, I guess, uh, lesson and, and something we need to recognize is part, part and parcel of how democracies work.
0: Um, well, Dr. Simeone, is there, um, any, any other departing thoughts you'd like to leave with us before we close out the podcast today?
1: Nick, I just want to thank you for your really penetrating questions. It's obvious you you read the book and, and, uh, you know, I, I'm a neo neophyte when it comes to podcasts and appreciate (laughs) you exposing me to this new technology. And, uh, I, I appreciate your interest
0: absolutely it's uh it's been an absolute pleasure um like i mentioned i thoroughly enjoyed the saints in the state and so i'll I'll give one one final plug for it before we close out you can pick it up at uh, i believe signature books that's how i became aware of it Uh, but it's also available on on amazon as well and uh i'll obviously put a link to it in the in the show notes so uh yeah i really want to thank you for coming on the podcast um I think it's books and and research like this that not only uh, contribute to the scholarly and the the historical community, but also uh, to the religious community as well. So on behalf of uh, the Mormon community, I'll thank you for your contribution. Thank you, Nick. Take care. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the talk Mormonism podcast. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you choose to listen. It also helps when you leave us a review so others can find out about the show. Thanks again.